All right, now, Genesis 24. Genesis 24, verse 1. A wife for Isaac. This is the pursuit in this first half of the chapter. In the last half of the chapter will be the completion of finding this wife and the marriage of Isaac. The first part, a wife for Isaac. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me, and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. In verse 1, it says that Abraham is old, advanced in years, uh, and the Lord has blessed him in every way. Blessed him in every spiritual way, blessed him in every physical way. We see an evidence of that later in the chapter when he is able to send by the hand of his servant ten camels full of good things of the earth and produce of the earth, even gold and silver. So then, verse 1 When it says he's old, how old was Abraham at this point? By this point, Abraham was 140 years old. 140 years old. We know this because in the previous chapter, it says that Sarah lived to be 127 years old, which means that he was 137 years old, since we know from chapter 17, 17, the difference between Abraham and Sarah was 10 years. Right. So if she died when Abraham was 137, here it says Abraham, in, in this chapter, he was old, advanced in years. It must be 140. Now, you might still be wondering why 140. Because we know by the end of the chapter, Isaac marries Rebekah. Right. And, and at what age did Isaac marry Rebekah? It tells us in chapter 25, 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. 25:20 says Isaac was 40 years old. So if Isaac was 40, Abraham was 140. And the difference between them, we know, was... Um, when Abraham was 100 years old, that's when Isaac was born. We see this from chapter 17, Genesis 17. So, Abraham's 140, three years after the death of Sarah. Now he prepares for Isaac to marry. It does not tell us why he waited 
three years after the death of Sarah, or why he waited until Isaac was 40 years old. But according to the providence of God, that's what happened. Isaac was 40 when he married. Now, in verse 2, it says, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household. Throughout this passage, it will call this man servant. But most likely, it should be translated slave. Slave, not just a servant as though he's one in charge of some manual labor, not like that, but that he was actually a slave, either purchased or born in his house. Um, And if... It is to be connected to chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 2. It may be Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer of Damascus, who was the heir of his house, because at that point in chapter 15, Abraham had no son. But by this point, Abraham does have a son, a son who will be the heir, that is Isaac. So Abraham commissions his slave, the trusted slave, and it says the oldest of his household. That means he has had a long life of faithful service to Abraham, and Abraham trusts him. Right. He trusts him with this task. Then it says he had charge of all that he owned. This is showing, just like it shows later in the book of Genesis, Joseph was a very reliable and trustworthy slave in the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian, the captain of the bodyguard, Genesis chapter 39. And in the same way, when Joseph was exalted to be the ruler of Egypt next to Pharaoh, he was also trusted with everything. They proved themselves to be trustworthy. And in this case, too, he is proving himself Uh, uh, to be trustworthy to Abraham. That's why Abraham commissions him with this task. Verse 2 mentions as well, please place your hand under my thigh. Place your hand under my thigh. We have another occasion to read of this practice of placing the hand under the thigh of another. In Genesis chapter 47, Genesis chapter 47, 27, We have this happening again. And you'll notice that in this context, in chapter 24 and in chapter 47, both of them have to do with swearing an oath. With swearing an oath, a solemn vow before God in order to accomplish a task. 47.27 Now Israel, that is Jacob, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Here again, it is placing the hand under the thigh of the other and swearing an oath. Now, why 
swear an oath in this manner. I think swearing an oath in this manner was to indicate subjection. Subjection and obedience. Subjection or obedience to the task that is. The oath will be carried out according to the way that the oath is sworn. That's the way in which they signified it, demonstrated it. You might also remember, this may be something similar to it. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 10, when Rehoboam was consulting the, his peers and then consulting the elders about what he should do, he took the advice of his peers to tell the people that my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Right? My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say that I'm going to be able to make you be in subjection to me because I have more ability to do that than my father did, even though the loins are bigger and thicker usually than anybody's little finger. Right? But he's saying by a figure of speech that I'm going to make you in subjection even more than my father Solomon made you subject to do his will. So I think that that is uh, a, a way to signify that he is the servant of or a slave of Abraham is going to uh, fulfill this vow. He is swearing before God to fulfill this vow. But also, in what is this vow focused? What is the main purpose of the vow? We do know that in the immediate context, the purpose is to find a wife for Isaac. But also, why is it that it would be placed on the thigh near the private parts of the man? Why there? And I think it's there because of the seed. The seed, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. The promised seed of Genesis 22.17. The promised seed that is also here that needs to come into the world. That is, Christ needs to come into the world. That this is the future hope, this is the hope that they have, that in carrying out God's will in this way, we are preparing the way for the coming of Christ. We do know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Judah, David, then to Christ, Christ called the son of David, that this was the case, that this had to happen in this way, according to the will of God and the providence of God. Then verse 3. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. And why does he do this? The Lord is the true God, but he is the true God of heaven and earth. He's the only God of the whole universe. The only God of the whole universe is the only one we can call upon to swear anything. Not upon any uh, angels or pagan gods or idols, nothing like that. Only the true and living God. Now, you might ask, is swearing an oath only for Abraham or only for the Old Testament period or is it also for us to do? Because there are some within Christianity who say that we should never swear oaths. Now, we're not talking about swearing as using profanity. We're not talking about cursing as using profanity or vulgar language. We're not talking about that. That's a idiomatic, English idiomatic use of it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the formal proper use, the way the Bible describes it. Is there any place for this 
formal use in our society? And I think the answer is yes. The answer is a definite yes. We also have New Testament examples of this in order to confirm the yes. Now, while we're turning, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, uh, you might ask, what's a proper occasion for it? Well, what about when you're married, when you're getting married in a wedding? Don't you uh, convey vows to one another and before people and before God? Or what about in the courtroom as a witness? Don't you, uh, uh, shouldn't we do it in the courtroom? Certainly. That in occasions like this, it is proper and, and good to do so. And in fact, it's dangerous if you don't do so. It's wrong if you don't do so. I, I, and I think it's a sin if you don't do so. And why? Firstly, I'd like to deal with a couple of passages that are misinterpreted and show you that the misinterpretation has caused people to say today, some people to say today, we should not swear any oath or make any vows today. And the two passages first that are misinterpreted are Matthew 5, 33. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is of the evil one. The concern that Christ has is in verse 3. Not to make, uh, 33, verse 33, not to make false vows. Notice that adjective, that qualifier, false vows. Don't make a false vow, but fulfill your vows. That's the way it should be done. And then if you're not going to practice that, his point is, then just say yes or no. That's his point. His point is not to eliminate vows altogether. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. 23, 16. 23, 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In this case, Christ is trying to make them realize that the, the main purpose or the ultimate value or the highest um, uh, point of seriousness is not the actual object, but what the object or how the object is receiving sanctification or how the object is receiving honor. Because if you swear by, for example, by heaven, you're not only swearing by the throne of God, 
but by God himself. And the focus needs to be on God himself. So, a clarification there. Matthew 26. Now, if one were to falsely conclude from Matthew 5 and Matthew 23 that there is absolutely no condition, no situation that swearing an oath is proper, then we have Jesus doing the contrary. Notice, Matthew 26, 62. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is in a court. He's in a religious court, but he's in a court, right? right? And Jesus is not answering. Then the high priest puts him under an adjuration. He says, I adjure you. That's what's done in court. It, that is, you're making somebody swear or vow to do what is said by the judge. And then once he says that to Jesus, Jesus answers. Now, if it were sinful to be under that oath, then Jesus would have said, I'm not going to answer anymore, just like I haven't answered. I'm not, not going to answer still because this is a sin and I'm not going to do it. But he didn't do that. He just answered. He answered, and of course, the high priest didn't like the answer, but he did nevertheless give him the answer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27. The Apostle Paul writes this letter and says this to the Thessalonians. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The Apostle Paul puts the Thessalonians under an oath. I adjure you by the Lord, the right way he does it, to do what? To have this letter read to all the brethren. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it private. But you better read it so everybody knows exactly what the mind of God is on the issues addressed in this letter. He, he the Apostle, practiced oath giving and the Thessalonians practiced oath uh, taking or receiving. Now, I want to give you one more example as uh, an example of having to read the Bible very carefully and in context. And that this would be Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. 5 verse 3. Zechariah 5 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely, everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So, the curse on the scroll, on the one side, if you steal, you're under a curse. On the other side, if you swear... You're under a curse, right? Uh, everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. But th does this mean swearing in any and every situation? No. Read the next verse. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. Right. 
There we have it. Swearing falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. You see, the next verse clarifies in the context what he meant by swearing and how wrong that was. Well, swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, that's where the sin was. Not swearing in every situation. And so, what Abraham is doing with his slave is right and righteous. Back to Genesis 24, verse 3. Verse 3 says that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Not from the Canaanites among whom I live. Now, why is this the case? Why is it the case? Because the Canaanites are of a different race. The Canaanites are of a different language, a different culture. Is that why? A different ethnicity, a different tribe. Is that why? No. That's not why. For example, um, let's look at 26, chapter 26, verse 34. Chapter 26, 34. There we have, And when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Here, Esau, he does different. He, he's, he contradicts what his father wants and goes and marries these Hittite women. And they bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, why would they bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah? And why is it that they didn't want such a thing to happen? Um, the reason is, just like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39, it says, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9 Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The key is to take along in ministry a believing wife, because an unbelieving wife will be a burden to the ministry and a contention in the ministry. So take along a believing wife. That is the proper biblical approach. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
This is what Abraham's concern is. This is what his concern is. The concern is whether the woman that marries Isaac knows God, believes in the gospel. That was his concern. Not that she was from a different race, a different nation, a different tribe. We know that that's the case also because we have Joseph, Joseph in Egypt, Genesis chapter 45, he married Asenath, the daughter of the priest or the official of the city of On in Egypt. Joseph married a foreigner. We also know from Numbers chapter 12 that Moses married a Cushite woman. He married a foreigner, a Cushite woman. Right? We know that Boaz, Boaz married Ruth and she was from Moab. Ruth was from Moab. So, and there's other examples of this. So that's not the real issue. The different ethnicity is not the real issue. The different religion is the issue. Marrying a believer is what was his concern. Then you might say, and commentators, I, I don't, uh, I've, I've, I've consulted five of them and they all, they all seem to think that for Abraham to send his slave back to Haran would, would mean, yes, they are relatives, but they were pagans up there. They worshiped idols up there. But I don't think that that's what happened. When they left um, Ur of the Chaldeans with Terah, their, their father, and then they migrated to Haran, and then Abraham and Lot came to Canaan, I think in the city of Haran, north of Canaan, that there was a remnant of faith up there. It, it's not uh, certain how many of them were, but I think that there was a remnant of faith up there among the relatives of Abraham. And you might ask, well, how do I know that? Well, look at Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. Remember, they are going to the city of Nahor, or the, the slave is going up to the city of Nahor, which is Haran. That's the name of the city. But the brother of Abraham is Nahor, who lives up there, or his descendants live up there. But look at Genesis 31.53. 31.53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. You see in this expression, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, which means Abraham and Nahor believe the gospel. Abraham and Nahor believe, and Nahor, he's the one that stayed in that city, Haran, did not migrate to Canaan with Abraham. So I think that this is what's on Abraham's mind, that he's hoping to find a believer up there in the city of Nahor. Now, let's go back to Genesis 24. 24, verse 4. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. When Abraham calls it my country, he's not talking about Ur of the Chaldeans, where he was born. He's talking about his country where he had lived for some years, where his brother and his relatives still live. That's what he means by my country. That is, in the city of Haran, north of Canaan, 
um, near the Euphrates River in northern Mesopotamia. That's what he means. Verse 5. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? If the woman doesn't want to come, should I take Isaac out of Canaan back to Haran? Not all the way to Ur, but back to Haran. And what's Abraham's answer? Look at verse 6. Verses 6 and, and following. He says, Beware lest you take my son back there. Your Bible might have an exclamation. Mine does. NASB. An ex- exclamation. Basically, Abraham is saying, absolutely not. Right. You better not do that. And then he says, uh, verse 8, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. Why is it that Abraham absolutely does not want this to happen? Because he left Ur and Haran to come to Canaan because of the promise of God that related to the land of Canaan, the future of the people, uh, his descendants, and the coming of Christ, and what all of that signified, that is, it signified the life to come. How do we know this? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 8. Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. Abraham had opportunity to return, but Abraham says categorically that he does not want to return or have any of his descendants return and settle in any previous country, but stay in Canaan. Why stay in Canaan and refuse to return? Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's the future city. That's not the earthly Jerusalem, but the future heavenly Jerusalem, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In verse 15, he says, if they wanted to go back to their previous country, they had opportunity. Abraham in Genesis 24 has opportunity for Isaac to go back, and Abraham says no. And we also know later that when Jacob fled, he fled and left Canaan for 20 years. He didn't want to stay even in Haran either. He wanted to come back to the land of Canaan. Why? Because of this. 
They knew that if they were going to manifest and show forth their true faith in the life to come, in the heavenly Canaan, in the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, that this is what God expected them to do. And they did not want to transgress the command of God. They wanted to believe it. That's why he says, don't take him back. So, verses 7 and 8. Genesis 24, 7 and 8. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. He is assured, Abraham is assured, that God will grant success because the promises of God have to be fulfilled. If the promises of God have to be fulfilled, there will be success on your journey. And besides that, his angel will provide the way, will provide everything you, you want. Now, this angel may be a created angel, or it may be the uncreated angel, the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. One or the other is what Abraham means here. And so, God will grant success. But to give assurance to his slave, and even the men who accompanied the slave, we'll see this later, that there were some men who accompanied him, that to give them assurance that it was going to be okay for them, that they were not on an impossible mission, he gives a way out to give them some peace of mind as to their task. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. So then... They are ready and they set out. We see in verse 9, the servant placed his hand on the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So that settled it for the slave, and he did according to the oath. He's prepared. Now, verse 10. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. We'll pause right there. Firstly, we have the slave going with ten camels, camels of his master, with a variety of good things. Why? Well, to present a gift. And the custom was for the groom's side to give gifts, money to the bride's side for the marriage to take place. These gifts are for, for showing the value of the marriage, but also showing that the groom's side has enough income, enough wealth to provide for the new bride, to provide for her and to raise a family. That they had to be manifested. They had, to, they had to have some indication of it, which is proper and good. There's no point 
if you have a daughter, giving your daughter to some man who won't work and has no money. It's not any good. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for the man to be a lazy bum, and it's not good for the woman to marry a man who's a lazy bum, right? Right. So this is why this happens. It's not to put on a, a show. It's not to flaunt wealth or anything like that. We also notice that for Abraham to be able to do this, to send 10 camels loads of goods to do this, he must have accumulated wealth over the years. So he was diligent. He was a, a hard worker. He did what was right. The Bible warns us against laziness. Go to the anto sluggard, right? The Bible says, Proverbs 6.6, 6, go to the anto sluggard. Learn to be diligent because the ant, the tiny creature, is diligent. Why can't you be? You have more intelligence than an ant does, right? So why don't you behave like the ant and even better? So, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands, so that he may be able to share with him who has need. Ephesians 4, 28. So, instead of being lazy, we should accumulate, and accumulate so much that we're able to share with somebody who has a legitimate need. A thief does not have a legitimate need. But others who are in an emergency... Un unforeseeable circumstances, those people have legitimate needs. And that's what Abraham did. That's the way he lived and modeled for his household. It says also in verse 10 that he went to the city of Nahor. The city of Nahor. We, we saw from Genesis 31-53 that Nahor was a believer. The city of Nahor is referred to that way as not the name of the city, but the place where Nahor dwelt. The place where he dwelt was the city Haran in northern Mesopotamia. Then in verse 11, the camels come outside the city by the well of water at evening time, and he has them kneel, has them kneel to rest. And the time when women go out to draw water. When it says evening time, it's not as though it's in the complete dark. Nope. It's likely at the time when the sun begins to set, in the middle of the afternoon into, you know, until about 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., about that time. That's when they go out to draw water so that they can have water for the rest of the night and early in the next morning when they go out to draw water again. And he came at an opportune time, a time when he knew that there would be women going to draw water, which was the custom. And upon this um, arrival, he prays. Yeah. We, he prays. And this is his prayer. His prayer is for God to grant success, to show loving kindness to my master Abraham. See, the slave is wanting success because of his master Abraham. And verse not for himself, but for his master. 13, behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I shall know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. What's he trying to get at in verse 14? 
Why does he want the girl to not only say, yes, of course, I'll give you some water to drink, but also I'll water your camels? Because a mindful, a considerate, a diligent, hardworking girl will do so. She's not going to kick and scream. She's not going to complain. She's not going to run away saying, I don't know you or anything like that. When it's an innocent situation, it's a genuine and innocent situation, you have somebody traveling, he's thirsty, and then his camels are there, they're resting, and they need water, right? And the men who are also with the slave, they need to, to drink and be refreshed. So when you see a legitimate need and you respond properly, that shows your character. Yeah. It shows character. The, the one who has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Right. Correct? Or as the, the good Samaritan did, he saw a stranded man beaten up and, and lying on the road and he goes and helps him out and takes him to an inn, re, helps him recover from his injuries, pays for his fees and sends him on his way. That's the kind of thing I th think the slave knows that that's the kind of woman that needs to marry Isaac. Not one who is frivolous and twiddling her thumbs and lazy and doesn't care and wants everything to be gimme, gimme, gimme. Not like that. She's a giver, not a taker. So that's a good prayer. We have other examples of this in the book of Ruth. The whole study of the book of Ruth, almost every chapter, has something that's like this. An example and description of the way Ruth was. Boaz noticed it and wanted to marry her. He noticed that, those virtues in her and wanted to marry her. We know the famous Proverbs 31, right? Proverbs yeah. 31 has that. But even in the New Testament... In many places in the New Testament, the virtuous woman or the virtuous wife is described. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says 2 verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather, clothe yourselves, right? But rather by means of good works as befits women, making a claim to godliness. May it be good works that are clothing the woman and not her external beauty. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says in 5.13, And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. The younger widows are busybodies, idle, gossips, doing wrong things, but instead they should... Be married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Because when they do that, do the, do the sinful things, they follow Satan. Right. But if they don't do that, do the opposite according to the Christian faith, they are following Christ. 
That's why he prays to find such a woman. Verse 15, Genesis 24, 15. 24, 15. And it came about before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Verse 25. Verse 25. And it came about before he had finished speaking. Before he had finished speaking, this prayer is being answered. This also happened to Daniel in the book of Daniel. While Daniel is praying, confessing his sins, the sin of his people, then God commissioned the angel Gabriel to go to Daniel before he finished praying to give him an oracle about the future the future coming of Christ and the future coming of other kingdoms, he gave Daniel that oracle while Daniel was praying. The same is said of, uh, in Isaiah 65, 24, uh, before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. That is, before there is a word on my lips, Psalm 139, yeah. O Lord, you know it all. Yes, God knows it all and God is working and he's giving us these examples to show he works. Yes, he works with our prayers. He wants us to pray, but he does according to his will. Right. He does according to his will. Whatever he wants, he will accomplish. And his concern for us, his love for us, his providence over us is demonstrated in that before we even ask him, he does things for us. Yep. He does things. Also notice in verse 15, it says, before he had finished speaking. Was he speaking audibly or silently? 2445. 24.45 says, when he himself is recounting, he says, 24.45, before I had finished speaking in my heart, there he says it. He was speaking in his heart, so he was speaking or praying silently, and that's when... This happened. So the girl did not overhear the prayer or anyone else did not overhear the prayer. He prayed it silently. And that also shows the providence of God, how he brought 
this girl there at the right time to meet the slave of Abraham. We have um, then her identifying, um, or, or the, the Holy Spirit identifies who she is, and then she confirms the same in her own words about who she is. She's the daughter of Bethuel and, and Milcah and brother of um, Abraham's brother Nahor. Milcah is the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Well, verse 16 describes a couple of things of importance. One is that she was very beautiful and a virgin. And to emphasize the fact of her virginity, it says, no man had had relations with her. Okay, so in the first case, her external beauty, and in the second case, her virginity, her internal beauty, or her character, her virtue. Right. This is the way she is described. The external beauty. Here, clearly, it is a positive thing, right? And when we read of King David, such as in 1 Samuel 16, 12, it also says that he was handsome and ruddy, that David himself was a handsome man. And that it said positive, positively of David in 1 Samuel 16, 12. So beauty or handsomeness, whether man or woman, <coughs> Um, the Bible doesn't disdain that. It doesn't disdain that. No. But what does it disdain? It disdains the focus on it or the, the consumption of that to the exclusion of seeing any character or having character undermine any value that the beauty might hold. That's what the Bible disdains. Isn't that what God said in the same context of 1 Samuel 16, though God said that David was handsome and ruddy, right? Even though it described him as being handsome. It said earlier in verse 7 about Eliab, do not look at his uh, outward appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in Eliab's case, the firstborn, David's oldest brother, he was also handsome, but he didn't have the right heart. David had the right heart and the right handsomeness, or, or handsomeness. He had both. And that's what is God's concern. Remember also, the Bible warns against outward beauty when there is no character in regards to Proverbs eleven twenty two, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. There's no point having a beautiful woman as wife if she lacks discretion, if she lacks discernment, if she lacks <coughs> wisdom, godly wisdom. No point in having that because it would be out of place. Putting a ring of gold on the snout of a pig, a filthy pig, no point. That's the way it is if you have a beautiful woman, but an, a woman who has no character, no virtue, but is full of vice. But that's not the case with Rebecca. Right. At least this is one of those indications that she's not that way. Now, uh, the other indication that she's 
um, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. Is this what we should expect generally? <laughs> yes. It's not just for Rebecca, but all, all girls or daughters should be raised that way. And that means that if they're going to be raised that way, then no men right. should be having relations with women until they are married. Correct? Because right. it takes two, a man and a woman. So that's the way it's supposed to be. Even in the New Testament, it's supposed to be that way. And if it's not, the Bible calls it fornication or sexual immorality. Fornication or sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Verse 11 says that some of them practiced those sins, but now are converted. But he did, did say in verse 9, fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals. Right. Just to name three of the sexual sins mentioned there, three out of uh, four of them. The effeminate is, the, is similar to a homosexual. So when he says fornicator, adulterer, homosexual, fornicator is what? Any sexual sin outside of marriage with your own wife, right? And then adultery is if you are married and you have sexual relations with someone else who is not your wife, that's adultery. And then, of course, homosexuality and effeminacy is when men have sex with men, which is also a sin. Clearly, he's showing that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the, the two will become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one body, or is one spirit with him. Flee immorality or flee fornication. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, or but because of fornications, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. There too. He's saying that outside of marriage, it is immoral or fornication. But inside of marriage, that's the proper place for sexual relations. Then we go back to Genesis 24, and we notice that Rebecca, she does indeed not only say, drink my Lord, respectfully addressing him, drink my Lord, 
But she quickly lowered, quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. And on her own, she says in verse 19, and when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. He doesn't have to poke her or convince her, coax her to do it. He drinks and then she automatically offers for the camels to drink. Then if he had 10 camels, which it says in verse 10, and if camels drink 20 to 30 gallons or can, can hold 20 to 30 gallons of water in their bodies for long journeys, right? Then let's just assume if we're going to be extremely, extremely conservative, extremely conservative and say they just needed one gallon each. That would be 10 gallons plus whatever she gave for him. That means going back and forth. If she's holding a jar, she's not going to be able to hold too much in the jar. So she has to go back and forth to the well, right, at least 10 times to be able to water the camels. But it's most likely that she went more than 10 times oh, back no. and forth. Sure. It most likely was more than that, much more than that. But even if it were that bare minimum, it would still be a lot, at least a lot according to our estimation, the way... People are not very generous these days, right? They're not very generous to strangers or generous to help people in a legitimate need. I'm talking about a legitimate need. Not a fake need out there, but a, a legitimate one. But she was very, very diligent to do so. So, then verse 22. 22. Um, after they all drink, it says that he took out the gold ring, and two bracelets, and then he asks her who she is. Now, the, the jewelry, this is another question that arises. Is it proper for Christians or believers to have jewelry or not? I think the answer is yes. yes. Just like with beauty that can be misused in verse 16, even jewelry can be misused. Oh, Jewelry or cosmetics can be misused, abused, or be excessive, and all that. But it doesn't mean we cannot have any use for them. It doesn't mean that at all. If it meant that it was a sin, then in this case, Abraham and the slave would be sinning by giving it to Rebecca, giving jewelry to Rebecca. And in I, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, the whole chapter presents God's relationship to the people as a husband and, and wife relationship. In the first 14 verses, you'll see how often God says, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you. And he mentions clothing and cosmetics there, clothing and jewelry there. I gave you, I gave you, I provided for you, and even all the, the food and, and maintenance of everyday life. God gave, God gave, God gave. He says, I gave to you. And if it is a sin to have jewelry or to have nice dresses, then God sinned in giving that to the people of Israel. But he didn't sin. And he's not sinning in making this comparison that that's what he did. um, And if you read carefully 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 and 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. I don't think the apostles in those passages are excluding jewelry or dresses or cosmetics, 
completely. I think there's, they're telling us, look for a woman of virtue, and then the external beauty is in addition to the virtue. The main thing ought to be the virtue, not the external beauty. All right, then, she, um, he, in verse, verses 26 and 27, 26 and 27, when she responds in this way and she, she offers a place to lodge, verses 26 and 27, we see the response of the slave. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. What's he doing? The moment he knows that God is blessing him, God is working, God is helping him, he worships God. He bows low and worships God. This is the proper response of a believer. In chapter 2452, when he talks to Rebekah's brothers, 2452, and it came about, when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. He did the same on that occasion. This happens in Scripture. Remember when God walked before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who shows loving kindness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children and upon the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Then what does it say? And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. When Moses understood the work of God and the character of God, the blessing of God in his life, because he had been redeemed, right? He was not going to get God's justice, but God's Mercy. He had it already and was going to receive it for all eternity. His mercy. He bowed low toward the earth and he worshiped. Luke, remember what happened to the ten, the ten lepers? Only one returned. He says, Luke 17, 18. Were none found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? This is the heart of a true man of God, understanding the character of God and the blessing of God and worshiping God because of it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.